and welcome to Suds, the weekly podcast where we run through the very best from the Startup Daily TV show, which you can catch on Ausbiz 2 p.m. every weekday. I'm Simon Thompson, editor of the StartupDaily.net website, of course, host of the show. And this week, I'm thrilled to welcome two fantastic guests, Grace Sai and Mark Allen, the co-founders of Unravel Carbon from Singapore. We've got some great links here, though. They're both here for the Visiting Entrepreneur Program, which is currently underway with the City of Sydney. Great events all around this city for the next week or so. Check it out. Go and see some of them. I went yesterday to an amazing discussion, uh, which included one of the people we're going to talk about today. But thoroughly recommend it. Grace, Mark, great to have you here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. Now, the idea around SUDS is we talk about the big issue of the week, and we're going to talk about the big news, and we're going to talk about you guys before we talk about our show guests. The big news, and it's happening this week, is we're seeing another one of the fast delivery startups out here. They're struggling in the US. It's starting to happen here. We've seen Send go down in the last few weeks. Today, the news has emerged that Volley has shut half its warehouse, got rid of half of its office staff. It's slowing down its delivery times. There's a sense that there are tough times ahead for startups. Do you get that sense in Singapore and more broadly as you look around? Well, I think in general, um, you know, with with startups, over-hiring, under-hiring, you know, the right amount, balancing all that is always a tricky balance. And therefore, moments like this will call for right-sizing to be done. So for, for some companies that are laying off, it might not be such a big deal except for correcting course. But for some others, of course, it would be, um, you know, bad news. But in general, we're seeing um, early-stage companies to be still thriving and attracting the capital that they deserve. And um, scale-ups would would have a more difficult time getting growth um, capital, but um, we still do not face the same sort of winter period as um, the Western world is facing. Mark, we've seen a heck of a lot of capital thrown at the wall in the last couple of years and people scaling fast, losing money just as quickly as they try to grow. I love that term right-sizing. It sort of makes it sound very nice and neat. Um, (laughs) What's your sense? Because I kind of feel there's a little bit of Darwinian economics coming into this and uh, in startup land, welcome to the real world of business. Yeah, maybe. And there's, there's, I guess, a lot of truth in that um, as well. And maybe, of course... You know, it is money going into ideas that are solid and areas that are solid for the future as well and areas where, you know, we do see the potential for growth. Well, let's talk about your growth story. Grace, I was lucky enough to meet you last week at the Tech Central Summit where you told your extraordinary story. So tell it again for our listeners because it is an amazing one (laughs) in terms of your career. You're not a first-time founder. Of course, Unravel Carbon is your latest passion project. Tell us why and also where you've been. I'm scratching my head as to which cool story. Um, yeah, Unravel Carbon is my third venture. Um, I'm um, the first two I've exited. Um, and um, this time I'm really dedicating the next decade of my life to helping decelerate the impacts of climate change. Um, before this, I came into this very cerebrally, right? Like I, I tried to map um, the largest problem areas in the world that have been old, stubborn, and somehow have not been fixed with a scalable solution. So Unravel Carbon is really an enterprise software that helps companies track and reduce their carbon emissions in a very scalable way. And Mark um, 
my co-founder here at my side is really the climate expert um, for the last 15 years. And so, you know, bringing my tech and venture capital lens with Mark's climate science um, lens would be, I hope, um, the, the formula that the world needs. All right, Brains, I'm going to talk to the Braun now. Tell us a little bit about how you two met, because, of course, there's a link in this in terms of uh, Grace's venture as a founder. Yeah, of course. And um, so I moved up to Singapore back in 2016, actually followed my, my wife up there, um, and started a consulting company working in the area of climate change. So because, you know, I'd been in climate change then for 10 years, I think now now it's probably about the right time that I can start this this company. And then of all the places, like scanning through where should I actually put this company, like what physical location should I work in, and ended up actually deciding on the Impact Hub, which was Grace's um, uh, co-working space and sort of innovation hub and community and all in one, right? So, you know, this group of really like-minded people all running their own companies, all very impact-focused as well. So it felt like a natural fit for where I should put my business and, you know, basically ran my consultancy out of that space for five years and um, through all the ups and downs that comes with that as well. Well, that was a wonderful piece of serendipity. Mark, I do want to ask you, was it a sense that uh, it was pretty barren ground here in Australia at the time and the opportunities and the recognition for the work you were doing were better recognised in other parts of the world? Um, I mean, I do acknowledge at that point in time, I think Malcolm Turnbull was briefly handed the uh, poison chalice of Prime Minister, (laughs) but, you know, um, there are a lot of people who are very unhappy at the time. Yeah, look... um So a lot of my climate change career has indeed been in Australia and it's been a long and rocky road um, uh, for that and lots of ups and downs. Look, um, I think on balance, however, although the policy landscape for climate change has been barren apart from sort of the the, the three years that we had the carbon price in in place Um, and carbon-related legislation, climate-related legislation is indeed a poison chalice um, at, a, at a federal level. But here in Australia, a lot of companies were doing the right thing. A lot of businesses are thinking longer term and thinking a lot about climate change strategies. So it's it was, I guess, quite a, a buoyant-ish market, again, very business-led. Um, uh, Singapore and actually putting my consulting business in Singapore, that was a very nascent market with respect to climate change and huge opportunity, right? Because um, there it's actually completely different. Everything's government-led and then it's businesses that are travelling along behind. So so quite a different structure, but businesses there are catching up quickly and they all realise that this is both a risk and an opportunity and something that they need to be involved in. I think one of the interesting things is that when we do have political failure, capitalism does actually work. The market steps in and starts to implement those solutions. We're going to continue talking about the unraveled carbon story, but I want to do it in the context of our big idea. Grace, you made this point, I think, at the launch uh, this week of the Visiting Entrepreneur Program that there are so few companies in the world that actually measure their carbon. Like, When we buy a plane ticket, often you can press on a button, pay a couple of bucks, and you feel like you've sort of absolved yourself. It's a little bit like, you know, your sins are forgiven at this point in time. But I got the sense from what you're saying that a lot of that is window dressing. 
Yeah, you know, you have a way of putting things, Simon. But I think in general, sustainability is not something that we all want to care about, to be honest. We just take for granted and assume that the planet that we're living on should serve us till thy kingdom come, right? Like till the end of the time. But that's not the case. And um, a lot of um, science and data is showing that already. So yes, out of the 400 million companies in the world, less than 10,000 are measuring and even fewer are doing something about it because no one wants to care about it. And even those who care about it, it's really laborious. You know, you need to hire a bunch of consultants. You spend six to nine months just collecting data, reading off electricity bills and invoices to pump into a model that calculates the carbon footprint. So we want to change that with taking on, um, you know, the hard piece of building, using a lot of data science and machine learning to build an engine that converts accounting data, which a lot of company has and is the richest source of truth for most companies. It's auditable, interrogable. We want to use that source of truth to convert it into carbon data. So um, greenwashing or not, um, I think everyone starts... Um, in a in a you know you know at a starting point um, in different places uh, for for some companies, but we hope that more companies, big or small, will be part of the solution instead of being passive bystanders. One of the other things that came out of that opening address and the panel that we had at uh, the visiting entrepreneurs, uh, and and the theme this year is future TBD, and we're talking big ideas, blue sky, all of that was the conversations I had afterwards where a couple of people said there was some pretty big thinking. We're talking AI, we're talking rocket science, we're talking big imagination stuff. But when you spoke, you kept it real. And it kind of reminded me that as much as we want to do some pretty amazing things in the world, if we don't look after this planet and keep it in in, in a state where it's still habitable for us, we're basically screwed on all of the other stuff. So you're the foundation block in terms of your idea of how every other entrepreneur can succeed in what they're doing because we're not going to live on SaaS solutions. Yeah, we literally talked about rocket science, didn't we, yesterday? It was amazing. It was a great panel. Um, But um, yeah, if, if we look at the data... Um, you know, once we hit um, a planet that was three to four degrees hotter and we're right now at what, 1.2, 1.3 degrees hotter, um, then, you know, a large portion of it will not become habitable, 70 to 80%. Um, you know, and, and that's extreme weather changes will affect so many things, right? Crops, uh, where we can leave floods and, and such. So um, I think it's really not um, an argument anymore whether that scenario is, we're on course of, arriving there, you know. Um, but I think a lot of people still think that, oh, it won't happen in my generation, therefore I can wait or not do anything. But those of us who care about the next generation certainly will not think that way. Mark, Grace made the point that I think we're going to have to fit a lot of people on Tasmania and the South Island of New Zealand if we're going to survive. And we're not going to have a lot of room left to grow plant-based burgers at that point. So yeah. there's going to have to be some pretty serious rethinking. I do want to ask you, you're an optimist. You believe that we can still make these changes because, of course, there are a few alarm bells being raised mm-hmm. along the way. Yeah, look, um, it's, it's it's funny because I, I actually just read a piece um, uh, from um, Project Drawdown um, uh, team, right, and it was actually really all about existing now in that space between hope and despair, which is actually a really, really interesting point. So you need that that 
sort of view that everything might be really bad to sort of drive you into this place where you think you can do something about it, right? But then also maintain that you think there's hope for the future. Otherwise, you know, it, there's, otherwise it's all too hard. You know, the, the problems are too big. And I think that's actually a really, really neat way of looking at it. So being pragmatic enough to recognise that there is the potential for you know, pretty large problems ahead and all of us squeezing onto the South Island of New Zealand, which which is indeed my escape plan as well. But um, if well, it comes Peter to that... Well, already there, so <laughs> you, know, you can ask him if you can move in. Yeah, I, I love I that could. description, though. It sounds like sort of the plot to a Bruce Willis movie along the way as well. Um, Maybe. Guys, it is uh, a big discussion we're going to continue to have, but we should talk about the guests we had on this show. And there is a theme consistent with this. We mentioned a little bit earlier Tim Kentley-Clay, who's back in Australia too for the program with the City of Sydney. Uh, he was on the show this week. Of course, his latest company is Hyper. He's already founded five businesses. And in this great interview with Nadine, uh, she asked him about whether he remembers the tough moments and what makes you willing to take risks over and over again. He makes the point that curiosity is his trump card. Here's what he said. I think it's like an innate curiosity, right? It's not, it's not that you're necessarily... Uh, courageous, it's that your curiosity uh, is like a trump card across anything that might hold you back, right, from taking, taking a risk. Um, so being, being naturally curious, wanting to bring people together to explore ideas, to see how things can come together in a new way, to move the needle for how you know, we live on this, this uh, planet as a community and also in a way that's empathetic with our environment, that's what really motivates me. So isn't that fascinating that building a better planet is his driver? I mean, you do, I suppose, when you drill down, find that the fundamentals of how you think as a founder, as an entrepreneur, are all basically aligned. Yeah, look, I, I think that's certainly a thing. And, and, you know, clearly my motivation is, is of course, building a better planet and, you know, decarbonising. And um, I think that is indeed a, a common theme through through people who are founders and entrepreneurs and, you know, you want to create a better world at the end of this by, you know, whatever it is that, that you're actually doing. Yeah, and um, sometimes a better world is just a better version of the reality that we live in and we want to see, you know, it can be small or big, it doesn't matter as long as, you know, who was the wise man who said it, right, if we can dream it, we can achieve it. So I think it's, it's that... Um, courageous, almost foolishness, right? To think that we can create a better version of any reality. Now, Nadine also asked him about his career and how he thinks as an entrepreneur. And I'm going to ask the pair of you this afterwards because it starts out with things like breeding rabbits and fake IDs at school. Here's what Tim said about how it all kicked off. Like most people that, that, that start a lot of things, you know, it started at a very young age, um, you know, collecting hard rubbish and trying to build a rocket ship. Much so entrepreneurial. Life. Entrepreneurial. Um, two rabbits. We wanted to breed them. We spent a whole year building this giant rabbit hutch. We're going to make a lot of money from that, but the rabbits actually ended up running away. Um, making fake IDs maybe at school, selling them for 20 maybe. bucks each. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's always about seeing, seeing an, an opening, seeing an angle where there's an opportunity to, to outperform. Yeah, and then technology. How did technology really come to the fore in what you do? Yeah, so technology is a great enabler, right? And so what I do specifically is try and look at 
what's emerging in technology, what is, what is state-of-the-art, might still be in research at university, it hasn't been applied, it hasn't been commercialized, and then asking the question, okay, if, if you can mature that technology and combine it with an experience in a product that leads to outperformance, you know, a startup, in my view, has to be at least one order of magnitude in front of an incumbent, if not two, to succeed. You know, so you leverage technology to create that step change to then apply it into the marketplace. So he talks about how, you know, you need to create a better idea that succeeds better than the others in the marketplace. Guys, how did your entrepreneurial journeys start? Mark, what were you up to, Grace? Right. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm <laughs> sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm just an engineer and how in the world did I end up in this position? That That's, you know, something that runs through my head. Um, I would imagine Grace is hard to say no to. It's part of the answer. <laughs> also, also that, right? <laughs> so um, she, she has a very compelling argument. And actually, you know, this, what we're doing now is something that's been sort of percolating in my mind for such a long time, right? Because all of this time spent, you know, creating the same spreadsheet about 11 billion times, right, and, and shipping that out to customers. And this this realisation that there must be a better way, right, and there must be a way that we can do things that is more scalable and more automated and, um, you know, realistically the world of consulting is inherently unscalable because you are limited by time, right? And even though I might be able to do things more efficiently than, you know, a fresh graduate in the same area, um, I'm still limited by the number of hours there are in the day and I can't, I don't have a time machine yet. So that sort of achieving that scalability is, has been sort of this thing that's bubbling around for so long, but I knew nothing of VC world and knew nothing of the tech world. You know, again, I'm just an engineer. Um, and that, I think that link is where we actually work really, really well together. What about you, Grace? Were you breeding rabbits or uh, building rocket ships when you were a young lady? No, I've always wanted to be a love doctor when I was when I was a young. A love doctor. Yeah, when I was young, I would line up all my soft toys in my underground bedroom to like tell me their love problems, and I would solve it over a radio channel like yours. You know, <laughs> you're having my dream job, Simon. But my dad found out, and he sort of shut my underground activities down. But your yeah. toys must have been very disappointed at this point. Yeah, now they don't have a love doctor, but it's all, yeah, it's all good. But, you know, I think I think in general, my theory at that time was like, life is so difficult, love is so difficult, one should have a school for it, right? Um, but, you know, we don't, we don't have, you have therapy, but yeah, I guess. But now I think um, Unravel Carbon, like Mark and I cannot be more different, right? Um, he's very patient, I'm terribly impatient. He's the sustainability expert and I'm a sustainability noob. Like 18 months ago, I knew nothing about it um, except for like we're in a bad shape and I had to self-educate myself for that amount of time and I still wake up at six o'clock every day trying to read up about this to to catch up, right? But I think in general, um, looking ahead, I always try to look at white spaces that, um, you know, in 10, 20 years, what would the world need? You know, what doesn't yet exist in terms of solving some of those needs? And and climate change is a huge, huge area to to solve, you know, and the more the merrier if they are doing it for the right intentions. And Tinder was already there along with several other dating apps, so you had to go down the environmental path. That um, too. <laughs> artificial intelligence, of course, is Tim's specialty and at Hyper he's working on a new way of dealing with it. We asked him to talk about 
how it makes sense and what it means. And it's really fascinating how he explains what's going on. Here's what he said. There's a lot of talk about AI, yep. um, artificial intelligence. Um, what does the word intelligence actually mean? You know, to me, intelligence means the ability to perceive a system and then realize that my action in the environment can change the way that system around me uh, responds and I can do that to my advantage, right? And a lot of so-called AI companies, they're creating systems that are all hand-coded. They are not actually learning systems. The systems don't actually have the ability to self-improve. So I call them AAI, artificial, artificial intelligence. Where at Hyper, our mantra is robots that learn as they move. So we actually create an algorithmic framework that we deploy on the hardware that as they move through the environment, they actually build their own frameworks, their own policies, their own dynamics models, and their own value functions of as I'm inter interacting with this environment, what does success look like, look like? And so that leads them to become very proficient at what they do without us having to hand code everything. So the fascinating thing there is he talks subsequently about the applications where he sees mobility and things like sidewalk delivery robots, a fleet of low-cost versions that can create learning data sets as the possible. And he's already got an unpublished prototype system on how to navigate using the programs and the algorithms that he's writing. This kind of really sounds like amazing stuff. And I reckon there will be some incredible environmental applications off the back of it. But we also asked, because he's out here for the program, what people can learn from him. He had this great response where he sort of says, well, it's all jazz, right? Do you have that sense that sometimes it's jazz for you? Here's what he said about how you should think as a founder. If, if you're going to start a company, it, it really needs to come out of a deep internal compulsion. You know, you're not doing it because a lot of people are doing it or you want some sort of, you know, fame or success or something like that. It really needs to be that you're obsessed by a way that you can structure something that's going to become really amazing because you're going to spend the next five to ten years of your life doing this and you're going to spend the next five to ten years of your life repeating yourself about why this is important, trying to recruit people, trying to convince investors, trying to convince people to use your product. So it needs to be very authentic. Uh, and I think if people sense that authenticity, that resonates and can really help to, to, to build things. So I think that's the main thing. What a great comment he makes there, Grace and Mark, about it has to come out of a deep internal compulsion. You have to be obsessed Does, and, of course, be authentic to be able to convince others. Do you have that sense as founders as you go through your journey? Because sometimes there will be doubters around what you're trying. And given you're addressing a massive market that isn't yet taking action, you are pushing a very big rock up a very steep hill. Yeah, a, a thousand percent. Like the, the startup founder journey is too difficult. It is almost for, you know, people with um, unhealthy minds because no one in their right minds would really embark on this journey where you're every department, you're HR and cop dev and marketing, you're, in, you're responsible for how many people's salaries and you're stressing about every, you know, stone that can be thrown your way, um, every competitor that can enter your market, every product bug that can go wrong, right? It's, it's just too difficult. Therefore, um, if you're not obsessed with a problem that you personally feel resonating, you know, with, it is almost impossible to make it to the end. Um, therefore, yeah, like, you know, really, really live in the, in the pain, in the problem um, before jumping into a solution would always be my advice for first-time founders. Well, we are going into interesting times, as we discussed at the top of the show. So we finally asked Tim about the VC capital funding space and really 
the possibilities, the opportunities that could emerge over the next year or two. Here's what he had to say. VCs are, you know, curious fish. They'll, they'll leverage the fact that the market's going down to try and drive uh, a better valuation from a startup. And valuations probably have got a little bit overheated, like all asset classes. But the way that the VCs are structured, you know, they already have commitments through limited partners that they can call on. So they're actually not overly affected by the macro environment. And so I think you'll see good companies still being funded through this environment. And it's also notable, I think, that a lot of successful companies either start or get through big downturns. You know, it's like a good litmus test of whether the company, the founders, the team have the grit, have the tenacity to get through mm -hmm. that environment. I mean, Tesla's an example. It started in 03. You know, it was not a good time <coughs> to be doing anything, really. Um, and then on the flip side, it's, it can be a good time for startups because when the economy slows down, they can actually access talent, right? Like when everything's too hot and all the big tech companies are paying through the nose for everyone, it can make it very hard to... To, 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 get, to get a foothold. Mm -hmm. So downturns can be used to your advantage as well as a startup. So VCs are curious fish, is his observation. Did you to find that? Because, of course, you had an amazing investment to kick off Unravel Carbon. Yeah, we were told that we have raised the largest seed round ever for a climate tech platform in Asia-Pacific, um, which we're very grateful for. It was a $10 million seed round led by Sequoia. And um, we were in a fortunate position because we really have understood the problem deep enough. You know, Mark has been doing this for 15 years. Um, and, and the solution that we arrived at, even at the conceptual ideas, you know, slight deck level, was kept compelling enough to have our round four times oversubscribed. And therefore, we could curate to get the best investors on our cap table. Well, it's great when you have those moments. Let's turn our attentions to VC. And we also caught up with Mark Gustowski from Mandalay Venture Partners. This is a new fund that's just emerged in Australia. It's been backed by the motoring organisation, the NRMA. I hasten to add that's not the insurance company. It's the member organisation. They're building a $50 million agri-tech fund. They've got $21 million already in place. I asked him why he started the fund. And the fascinating thing is the numbers are actually even worse than the investment in female founders. It's 2% of VC funding goes into ag tech at this point in time. Here's how Mark explained why they're doing it. One of the things we've seen during the pandemic is that the, the challenges that exist within the Australian food system, uh, particularly global food systems actually, um, and the importance of actually being able to manage and sustain um, food production has been incredibly important. So at Mandalay, uh, one of our, I guess, North Star missions is very much to be able to sustainably feed the growing global population. Um, and that's a very high level macro um, activity and opportunity. But more locally, we're looking to invest in some of the best startups in Australia that have technology around food production, food sustainability, um, whether that be farm to fork. It's been a fairly underserviced sector across the whole of the Australian venture landscape with less than 2% of all venture capital going into ag tech. And so it's an area that has been incredibly underserviced but has huge pent-up demand. And the most important part, and this is where you guys also come in and I want to ask you about it, they're putting a layer of ESG over the investments and they've got a sustainable investment committee who looks at who they're going to be backing as part of this fund. We're starting to see this increasingly. Here's what. Mark had to say about this particular focus. We see some tremendous opportunity in IoT devices, uh, on-farm technology, uh, farming equipment, digital twins on farms, so actually mapping out farms, looking at, um, looking at various SaaS, 
SaaS solutions and products that actually overlay data sets onto farms and right through to supply chain logistics, whether it be provenance and traceability technologies to actually um, be able to source and identify the provenance of food uh, from a food, secu food security perspective um, through to marketplaces. So we're quite a broad fund in that sense, um, but we are looking at things that can efficiently and sustainably uh, feed growing populations. Um, and that in Australia, we really have tremendous opportunity. We have some of the cleanest um, growing environments globally. We have great technologies on farm, particularly we have a lot of farmers that innovate through necessity. Um, and so there's a lot of technology that exists on farm and there's some wonderful research being taken, taking place in various research institutions. University of Adelaide has some fantastic um, research activities going on in the tech space and we're really excited about investing um, across the whole landscape. So Grace, other Mark, do you think this is an important layer that venture capital needs to think about as they start to put money into startups and companies? Yeah, I certainly think the world has moved quite a lot with um, with respect to sort of where capital is being deployed and where how capital is being deployed into a particularly ESG. And there's a lot of, I guess, conjecture about how useful ESG ratings are and there's a lot of press at the moment and you just need to look at what Elon Rusk is writing about ESG ratings right now um, to see some of those arguments in play. But what I can tell you is in in my experience there has been almost a structural shift in the way capital is being deployed and the decision-making that's going into where capital is going so that it has positive environmental, social and governance outcomes um, overall and incorporating some of these metrics and understanding to make sure that where they're deploying this money is actually into a positive place um, overall. Well, one place you can put it positively is the wine industry, in my view. And one of our guests this week was Mitchell Taylor from the family-owned Clare Valley Winery, Taylor's Wines. I love this story because... Now, Grace, do you know what a goon bag is? No. Mark, <laughs> you have to teach her to play Goon of Fortune. Goon of Fortune, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a hill's hoist in my house, but I'm sure we could find some. I always remind people that they are two great Australian innovations, the hill's hoist and the uh, cask wine, and when you put the two together, you have absolute Australian genius of Wi-Fi levels. <laughs> um, but the great thing here is that uh, Taylor's Wines, along with Banrock Station, have partnered with uh, Coles and their Liquorland and First Choice Liquor Markets to release this new range of wine made in pet bottles. So we're talking recycled plastic, but they're flat. And so just think about it with the round shape, how much air there is, but they also weigh 80% less than glass. And when you think about how much wine is shipped around, there are some astonishing numbers in this. We're talking about, for example, the ability to cut 250,000 kilometres of road freight a year or the equivalent of a semi-trailer travelling from Melbourne to Broome, so one side of our island to the others, a little bit longer than Singapore, 50 times. Extraordinary numbers around this. So I asked Mitchell a little bit about why they were doing this. We've strategically partnered with one of our major customers, uh, Coles, via their liquor land um, and first choice stores. And really it demonstrates the, um, the innovation of our family business of what we've done. We were one of the first wineries to sign up to the, the Paris uh, Treaty with the emissions. And we've said that we will be um, 50% reduce our, our carbon footprint with our scope one and two admissions by the year 2030. And, and we'll look forward to uh, eliminating all those admissions by 2050. So this has been a brilliant pack that we've teamed up. 
um, to, to have these flat bottles that are made from PET plastic that is all being recycled. And the beauty of them is they're actually 83% lighter than, than your average uh, bottle of wine with all that glass. So that's where we can really get in and save on the freight and, and the packaging and, and all the um, ad admissions required there by um, by getting into those scope three transport costs that, that, that are vital in reducing our footprint for, for great Australian wine. Now, I am a little bit of a wine snob, although I do love a good, cheap and cheerful wine. And this is where this is pitched. It's about 16 bucks a bottle. So you're not going to be laying it down for 50 years to sort of see how things going. I asked him, because they're also doing it with a Shiraz and a Chardonnay, about how long the wine would last and, and their ambitions for it. Here's what he had to say. It's in a pet bottle, so we know that it, it'll, it'll last a good two years um, and, and we'll be doing trials on it. But this is, yeah, our entry level one small step. So what we're, it, it's a great... Uh, trial that we're doing. We want to see the pickup, but it's really, um, you know, designed for great storage. You know, here's a bottle. You can slip it um, under the car seat, very light, put it in the fridge, but would recommend that you consume this um, wine within one to two years. Now, the really fun thing about this is they've called the wine One Small Step, and there's a great story behind this that I asked Mitchell to explain because it's a family link. And, of course, when you think about the idea of one small step, one giant leap, it ties in beautifully on this one. Here's Mitchell explaining why they chose this name. A really significant day for us was over 52 years ago um, on the 20th of July. My, my grandfather and father... Um, established our family winery in the beautiful Clare Valley of South Australia. And it was said at the time, it was one small step for us to be planting this vineyard. But as it was occurring, um, my grandfather said to my father, well, look, there, there we have um, Armstrong uh, landing on the, um, on the moon on that very same period of time. So really the synergies for us wasn't lost when we saw... Um, man make that great step we also realized that my grandfather and father they were hotel publicans before that but we were making a great big venture for the taylor family in, in stepping onto this beautiful terrorosa soils that our, our clear valley uh, vineyards are currently on so grace mark i don't think that you'll be packing a lot of this in your duty free but you know what if you do go and get a case shipped to singapore to enjoy after a hard day's work at unravel carbon at least i think you can feel a little less guilty about the air miles about the freight the environmental impact and still enjoy a glass of wine so to me that is a great example of environmental innovation <laughs> does sound like a win-win that's for sure Grace, Mark, it's been great to have you on Suds this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we've just missed Thursday night's event, so unfortunately um, they, people can't be a part of that because Suds goes out every Friday morning. But, guys, what are you up to for the rest of the week? Where can people catch you and any other events as part of the program? Um, yeah, tonight I'll be at um, the KPMG building for, uh, for one more event and tomorrow I'll be speaking at Stone & Chalk in the morning. Stone and chalk in the morning. All right, Grace, Mark, thank you for joining us from Unravel Carbon. Guys, have a great weekend. We'll see you on the Startup Daily Show 
2pm Monday. Bye for now.